0: Well, friends, you can go ahead and grab a Bible and turn over to Judges chapter 17. Uh, Judges chapter 17, we're going to be looking at chapter 17 through the end of the book this morning. Chapter 21. Uh, this is it. This is our last Sunday in Judges. It's been all fall for us. If you're just visiting for the first time this morning, this is you're catching us on the, at the end of, of a series that we've been... Unpacking together week by week throughout the fall, we're gonna we're gonna stay in the period of the judges for the next couple of weeks. We're actually gonna spend two weeks looking at the book of Ruth, which happens all of its action takes place in the same time that this this uh, period we've been unpacking uh, all of these things were going on. Uh, Ruth is kind of a zoomed in look at what one family was experiencing during the chaos of this period. Shaka Mitchell is going to be preaching on the first part of Judges next Sunday, and then I'll be finishing up the week after that. So hopefully if you're in town after Thanksgiving, come join us uh, as as we move further into this part of the Bible's history. But for today, we wrap something up. Today, we look at chapters where the book of Judges collapses into its conclusion. Crashes and burns might be a better way to put it. Devolves, unravels, falls apart. The scene that we're going to be looking at this morning, the, the, the lay of the land, if you will, during this time, reminds me a lot of like a, a, post, a post-apocalyptic movie or, or novel. I mean, those are hot right now. The Walking Dead on AMC keeps on shattering all records anywhere for cable drama and viewership. You had Mad Max, Fury Road last year, a year or so ago, winning all sorts of awards, critical acclaim. You had Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road, that many of you have read and enjoyed. Uh, Think of those images, if you've seen movies like that, read books like that. And imagine the world of of Judges, here at the end of this book, as a barren wasteland. As a, 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 a place full of unforgiving bands of crazed men roaming around looking for whatever plunder they can find. People trying to carve out pockets of peaceful existence while... Those who wish them harm or only want what they can take from them look for them at every turn. That's the kind of setup that I think Judges ends with here. In fact, what we're going to look at this morning includes one of the ugliest stories in all the Bible. At this point, friends, we are are done with individual Judges. No one else is coming. One by one, God has raised up deliverers to save Israel from the pit they dug for themselves. And one by one, those judges give us glimmers of hope, but then fade away with their own deaths. And at this point in the story, nobody else is coming. At this point in the story, we're done with oppressive neighbors. There's no country out there, no neighbor, no no other tribe that's imposing its will on Israel at this point in the story. Israel's not the victim here. What we get and what we look at this morning is a window into what life was like for the average Israelites during this period of the judges and what we see is terrible. What we see is that Israel has become her own worst enemy. What Israel needs is to be saved from herself. There's not a lot of comment on the stories that come in these last five chapters. The writer doesn't really say much other than the details. But he does give us one clue to the meaning of these last five ugly, dark chapters. It's a clue we're going to pull on through these five chapters like a thread that's going to take a, help us find our way through. There are four places in these last five chapters where the, where the author says something like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Four places, a statement like that one shows up in these five chapters. And in that comment, what this author is trying to do is, is help us to see that in all these stories, all their gory details, all of them are meant to show us what happens. When there's no king to establish justice, and when everyone just does whatever he wants. I want to, obviously, five chapters is way too much to cover in a half an hour that we've got left. I, what I want to do is just dip into the story at the places where those statements show up, where the author calls our attention to the fact that there's no king and everybody's doing what's right in their eyes. Here's an example of what happens when there's no king and everybody's just doing whatever they want. We're going to look at his examples as they pop up with these statements and use that as a chance to, to, to view judges from this big picture, this, this big bird's eye view. Here's what happens when people are just going rogue so that we can get ready to see how Jesus solves the problem this book is here to show us. I going to look at three ugly stories. I'm going to tell you three stories this morning, and then I'm going to draw two lessons, and that's it. That's what we're doing. Three ugly stories, two crucial lessons I want to start by reading the first story. This is coming in Judges chapter 17 in the first six verses. And if you found that now, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read? This is the word of the Lord from Judges chapter 17. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse And also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. To make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is God's word. You can be seated. You saw the statement. This is the first time it comes up. Chapter 17, verse 6. This little story is the first example of what happens when there's no one to explain and establish justice right, when everybody just does what they want. This first story is tame compared to the other ones we're (laughs) going to look at, but it shows the cracks in the foundation that are going to bring the whole house down later on. The story starts with a bang. There's no context. We get Micah in his house, opening his mouth and talking to his mother about something she said that we didn't get access to. It just jumps right in. It's a man named Micah fessing up to mom about some money that he'd stolen from her. I wonder if you noticed as we were reading through that section, some of the things here look promising, actually. I mean, it's almost like a simple little domestic scene where a family is having an an important, wonderful moment of reconciliation. The son has, 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 has come in repentance, feeling bad about what he'd done to his mom. His mom forgives him. And then, and then his mom even dedicates this money to the Lord. That sounds great. Not so fast. This guy just stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. This guy only fesses up about it because he started to feel afraid. She's put a curse on him. He's worried about the bad juju. He doesn't feel bad about what he's done. He he just wants to get out from under her words against him. And when she dedicated the returned money to the Lord, did you notice what she had in mind? She wanted to make a God of their own design, shrunk down to fit inside their own house. that points to is a God who shrunk down to fit what I want. Now, he even ordained his own son as a priest. This is a guy who wants to control the shape of his God. He wants to control access to his God, and he wants his God's power all on his terms. It's basic idolatry. They've still got the name right. They're still using Israel's name for God. They're not Worshipping Dagon or some of these other gods of their neighbors. But there is something horribly wrong here. What looks okay at first is actually an awful sign of Israel's rotten core. Because here, what we see is Israel living unaccountable to God. Israel's life, Micah representing Israel, unaccountable. To God. God to them is just a tool to be used to get more from life. He's not a God to be worshipped. He's not a king to be obeyed and trusted. He's a God on their terms, made to fit their design, aimed at getting what they want out of life. Friends, be careful you don't do the same to God. Be careful that you're not knocking the edges off of a portrait of God that doesn't sit right with you. Pieces of that God that seem hard or out of date Or setting up another God altogether. Worshipping, serving, trusting, and obeying something else as the key to your life. Careful you don't do that, friends, for reasons that the next story is going to make really clear. The next place, story number two. The next place that the statement, there was no king in Israel, comes up, is in chapter 18, verse 1. Chapter 18, verse 1 opens with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And we're still in Micah's territory. This one's going to feature Micah and Micah's homemade gods and show us a little bit more about what happens when God is not someone you're accountable to, but someone you're just using as a tool to your own ends. This happens. This comes out in the story of what happens to Micah and his gods when they run up against a tribe more powerful than they are. So this story is where uh, where the scene begins to look post-apocalyptic. Chapter 18 opens with its focus not on Micah, but on a group of Danites, one of the tribes of Israel. See, what happened to the Danites is that back at the beginning of Judges, when they first came into the land, they'd been given a section of the land as theirs, but they were told they needed to drive out the people who didn't believe in God, the ones who had earned God's judgment for the way they were treating one another, but the Danites couldn't get it done, and they left their land occupied by Canaanites. They had no place to go. They were just nomadic. And when these nomadic Danites decide they're tired of just moving around all the time, they begin to look around for a place they could take for their own. This is where we find them in chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. Let me read those first two verses. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So, here's what they did people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and Eshterol to spy out the land and explore it. And they said to them, go, explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and they lodged there. It doesn't take The Danites very long to find exactly what they're looking for. They spend the night with Micah, then they move on to some territory not too far from where Micah lived. And what they find is a poor, unsuspecting people. A people who thought that they had managed to find themselves a spot where they were out of everybody's way. Where they were hurting no one and being hurt by no one. They were neutral. The Switzerland of the judges' era. Listen to verses seven through ten. The five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth, possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. These were isolationists, just living their lives. And when they, the the five spies, came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshterol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we've seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you'll come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious. God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything That is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan. Armed with weapons of war. Set out from Zorah and Eshtiol. And went up and encamped. At Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. They get up their troop of 600 fighting men. To go surprise the people of Laish. And they do. That people wasn't ready for them. There was nothing they could do. But die. And give it up. However, the story isn't really drawing our attention to the people of Laish. The story is drawing our attention to Micah. Those five spies had stayed at Micah's house on their way to spy out a place for them to live. While they were there, they noticed Micah has a lot going on for him. Micah's got his own gods, he's got his own priests. He's got a tailor-made, right-in-his-eyes power tool for building a life on his terms. And they decide they want what he has. What was right in their eyes was taking what Micah had built based on what was right in Micah's eyes. Verse 18 to 20, read these with me. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image and the ephod of the household gods and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be the priest to the house of one man or the priest to the tribe and clan in Israel? And that sounded right in the priest's eyes. The priest's heart was glad, so he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image, and he went along with the people. Micah's response to all of this is pitiful. He goes running after them. These 600 armed men who'd just taken what he had. Verses 24 and 25. He catches up with them, and he says... You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? The people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. That's what the author wants us to notice. Micah has paid dearly to learn a valuable lesson. Micah has learned what, that, that, that what seems right in my eyes, what makes sense and feels good to me, works only until I run up against what seems right in the eyes of someone more powerful than I am. Having it your way is great until you run up against the desires of somebody who wants to have it their way, somebody you can't resist. It's great until that guy having it his way directly conflicts with me having it my way. Friends, a God of your own design. A God that shrunk down to your size. Nothing more than a means to your ends or a reflection of what you already want out of life. That God is not a God that can protect you when you run into something or someone who's more powerful than you are. That God is not a God who can redeem you from hard things or prevent what you can't escape on your own there's a third place that this statement comes up and it builds on these same ideas the first two examples have pointed us to in fact the next i told you there are four statements about there not being a king in Israel and people doing what's right in their own eyes The third and the fourth statements bracket. They come at the beginning and at the end of this next sequence of stories. And this, this is the story where we reach the low point in this book. It shows us that without a God that's actually God, when the only right is what's right for me, weak people will be abused by the strong. I want to tell you this story before we think through what we've learned. The story opens, chapter 19, with another Levite who's on a trip to Bethlehem to pick up his concubine. Concubine in the ancient world was a sort of second-class wife is one way it's been described. It's, it's a legal arrangement, um, could be described as a wife, but without the same status and celebration uh, of, of wh- what you might call a normal wife in those times. Apparently, this man has angered his wife somehow. We aren't told exactly what happened. We're told she went home to her dad's house and that he went to go get her to speak kindly to her heart, verse 3 says, and bring her back. So he heads to Bethlehem, this Levite, to pick up his concubine. Her father's happy to see him, this is at the beginning of chapter 19, so happy, in fact, that he hosts them for several days. He wants to make sure they have lots of time to sort of all get back peaceful with one another and send the couple back on their way in a much better place than they were when he came. Day after day, this father pours out his hospitality, begging him to stay longer and longer and longer. This was the way things worked in the ancient world. Hospitality was huge. Finally, this Levite man, whose name we never get, says he can't, he can't stay any longer. I really have to go, but it's already late in the day. So when he sets out with his servant and with his concubine, headed for home to the hill country of Ephraim, it's already getting close to dark, and he's not going to make it all the way. On the way back, one of his servants says, there's the city of Jebus over there. The city that would become Jerusalem in time. Why don't we stop there? Let us turn aside, this is verse 11, to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel. We'll pass on to Gibeah. You never can tell what might happen in a city of foreigners. Let's go to our people. They enter into Gibeah, and it is an entrance that's a lot more than a little creepy. Nobody greets them. Nobody invites them in. It's a post-apocalyptic ghost town almost. They make their way to the square of the city. They passed on, verse 14 says... The sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to go in and spend the night and went in and sat down. in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Then an old man sees them, verse 16. He was coming from his work in the field that evening. He wasn't even from Gibeah. He was from Ephraim. He was just there as a, as a guest himself. He sees them in the square and he invites them in. But his words point to something deeply wrong. Verse 20, the old man says, Peace be to you, I will care for all your wants only. Do not spend the night in the square. Other translations, maybe yours, say, Whatever you do, do not spend the night in the square. Why not? This is an Israelite town. These are our people. What's going on here? So they enter the old man's house. Verse 22 says they're making their hearts merry, feasting, drinking, eating. Then they hear voices. There's a violent thud against the door. My translation says beating on the door. One other alternative would be they're throwing their shoulders into it. They're doing everything they can to get in the door They said to the old man, these worthless fellows who'd surrounded the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. Now, if you've grown up in church, if you have much familiarity with the story of the Bible, that scene probably sounds familiar. And it's not an accident that things are playing out here, almost exactly as they did in Genesis chapter 19. The story of Sodom, where Lot and his family were attacked in much the same way. Sodom had become the image of all that was wrong with pagan society. Israel had become the image of what God would do to make sure that doesn't happen anymore. And now Israel has become Sodom. There was no king in Israel. The old man goes out to reason with them. Verse 23. No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. It seems like we finally have our hero. This man is going to stand up for what's right. Until he suggests a substitute. Verse 24. Here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do what seems good to you. Do whatever is right in your eyes. They're not satisfied until the husband, the Levite, seizes his wife and shoves her out the door to them. They knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. This mob is thinking only of their desire. They're completely consumed by it. These weak, fearful men think only of preserving themselves. The old man and the Levite. The one perspective no one notices because no one seems to have to is the perspective of this woman. Nameless to those for whom she was merely an object but made in God's image, Israel should have known that. They were not Canaanites. This woman has dignity. She was someone's daughter. She brought joy to her family. She had hopes and dreams of her own. How this seemed in her eyes doesn't even come into it. But it's not difficult to imagine her fear being shoved out into that crowd by her husband who was meant to protect her or her pain as she endured that night or her experience as she inched closer and closer to death. As the dawn began to break, they let her go. Verse 25 is said, And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold he said to her get up let's be going but there was no answer she had died so he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home from this point in the story to the end of the book it's just fallout from this event The man dismembers his concubine's body and sends her pieces to the ends of Israel's territory to let the other tribes of Israel know something had happened that was not okay. For once, Israel decides to do what's necessary. They are unified in holy war, like they were supposed to be back at the beginning of the book. Only now, the ones that they go to fight, the enemy of God's holiness has become Israel itself. they had become Canaan. What's the purpose of a story like this one? Friends, it's just an example. This book presents it as just an example, just one example of what happens when everyone just does what is right in his own eyes. Based on the behavior of this mob, it almost seems like it was a fairly routine example. They seem to have experience. This seems to be expected. This is just what happens when no one but the individual decides what's right, what's just, what's good and true and beautiful. When everyone decides what's right for himself, the weak get abused by the strong. Now, I want to leave you with two lessons. What is this story doing here? What is this book doing here? It's a big question. I want to just point you towards two answers. The first is a lesson about justice. A lesson about justice. Friends, for for a while now, in North America and in Western Europe, it's been common to assume that, that personal individual freedom or autonomy is the most important thing societies can build towards. That we'll all be better off the more free each one of us is to live life on our terms. There's a lot of truth in that, actually. A lot of things do get better when we have more freedom. What that basic idea has morphed into, though, is a sense that what matters most is that no one should be able to tell anyone else who to be or what to do. That every, every person, every individual should be free to define for themselves what is right and good and true and beautiful. I think that comes from a good motive. I think we often see that as a check to power, as a pushback against those who would impose their will on others. But judges is turning the tables on us here. This notion of autonomy, this kind of world where everybody just does what's right in their own eyes, doesn't hold power in check at all. It turns abusive power loose. The same impulse, just to stay with, with sexual ethics, as this story has set us up for, the same impulse friends that drove the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s judges tells us drives sexual abuse in that revolution, we tore down all rules surrounding sexual behavior free love that was the mo- that, that, that was the the mantra wasn't it? Love that's free of marriage. That's free of child responsibilities through abortion. That's free of any gender-based restrictions. Good sex is whatever sex I want. I know that that can feel like liberation. But it actually paves the way to subjection. It subjects the weak to the desires of the powerful who want what the weak can't stop them from taking. We are not more free, friends, when we put individual autonomy on the pedestal where we've put it. We are more vulnerable. Because all justice, here's the the lesson about justice, all justice depends on On a standard for what's right. Whether the powerful like it or not. Whether I like it or not. All justice depends upon a standard for what's right. That bows to no man. And there can be no true and lasting justice where everyone just does what's right in their own eyes. Justice depends on someone who knows what's right and has the power to impose what's right on other people. And that's the authority that judges has in mind here. There's barely any commentary on what happens in these stories. I mentioned that before. You've seen it now for yourself. The author is just telling us what life was like in Israel in these dark days. The commentary is in the refrain. There was no king in Israel. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. What we're missing is a king. And this is the lesson about Jesus. This is what Judges wants us to see about Jesus. When we hear the Bible talk about a king, our images of king immediately come into our of kingship immediately come into our mind, I, I assume. We think of a king as maybe part of the problem for justice, as this sort of man put on a pedestal to whom everyone has to, to, to submit. We think of you know, ugly King George Third and his self-serving, exploitative system of taxes on people who didn't have no say-so. Or maybe, uh, so maybe that, that, that's a historical example, maybe we think about kingship and monarchy in the way that we see it now in, in, in Britain. We think of Queen Elizabeth and we think of something that's more symbolic than anything, of an empty suit. Don't think about that. In the Bible, the ideal of a king is one who has the authority to explain what's right, to define it for his people, and the power to enforce what's right. The king, in this judge's ideal, is someone who has the right to explain to us what is, what must be, and who has the power to impose what's right on people who might resist him. The only path to the justice that we crave is a king that we can trust. That's what Judges is pointing us to by saying over and over throughout this ugly stretch of its story, there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. You want justice where these sorts of things can't happen? What you need is a king. And that theme tumbles like a snowball rolling downhill, gaining in its mass and its speed all the way through the Old Testament. From judges, through the stories of the the adoption of the monarchy, through the psalms and the, the songs that the people were singing as they looked to their future, to the prophets who made all these amazing promises, and all the way into the birth stories of Jesus who's announced as the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the King. The Bible is obsessed with this king, this anointed one, because the Bible, because God is obsessed with justice. So you're right, friends, to long for a world where it's not okay to buy and sell women's bodies on the street or on the screen. You're right to long for a world where it's not okay that your place in the criminal justice system or in civil society depends so much on the color of your skin or the the quality of the lawyer that you can afford. You're right to long for a place where the most vulnerable lives of all, the lives of unborn children, are, as, are, are not nameless and voiceless and dispensable like the Levite's concubine because the powers that be have decided that they are. You're right to long for something more, for a world where these things are not okay, not because it seems right to you that they shouldn't be, but because they're not right in the eyes of the God who made you, whose image is pressed on you and every other person. It's not okay to Him. And in sending His Son, Jesus, He has proven once and for all the the extent to which He is committed to establishing justice. He has put Himself on the line to establish justice. And with his coming is a promise that this world as we experience it, its days are numbered. Only Jesus can give you the world that you're longing for. How else do you find the strength to keep on working, persevering toward justice and peace where you can? A lot of you are here today uh, representing these ministries that we that we love and support and want to see so many others getting involved with. And I know a lot of you are working towards a world that will be different than what it is. But how do you find the strength and the perseverance to keep working toward justice and peace when there's so much stacked against you? How do you keep getting out of the bed each morning and facing what you face? Problems that are, are, are far greater than you will ever be able to solve. Powers standing against you that are greater than you will ever be able to thwart. You may feel like you're taking two steps forward and three steps back, and you know what? You're not wrong. You can't do it. If it depends on you, then you may as well give up. But it doesn't depend on you. So don't give up. Don't stop seeking justice where you can. All you have to give up is your desire to get credit. For the world that you want to see. When it comes. Jesus will bring it. You got to give up your desire to get credit for it. But with that burden. Tumbling off your shoulders. You don't have to give up. This battle. Is won. If I'm honest, the world that I long for depends on a judgment I can't survive myself. The fact that Jesus is the only hope for this world we've been describing, for a world where judges and its events have no place, is really good news to me when I'm looking for a reason to keep going. It's really bad news for me when I'm honest about the the state of my own heart. The world that I'm longing for is not a world that I'm fit to live in. We can be outly, rightly outraged against the injustice of racial stereotypes, for example, because they demean precious people made in the image of God. Because they only serve to prop up the racist, weak self-image. But I wonder, friends, do you not make assumptions about people whose lives are different from yours? people who live in the suburbs when you live in the city or vice versa, people who choose different schools than you or support different candidates than you do? Have you not used those differences to prop up your own self-image? Friends, the, the, the world that I'm longing for is not a world I am fit to live in. Unless the same king, who's promised to establish it, has also promised to make me worthy of it. Not because I am, but because He is. And He gives His place to me. The message of the gospel is is big. It's sweeping. It's the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. It touches everything. But when you boil it down, it is also a message of hope and healing and reconciliation for you. So as we work for this world, we don't work as those who are the standard someone else has got to meet. We work as forgiven sinners who have a place that's available to anybody who will take it, who will trust Christ and His work, and not their own. This world is coming, and you can be part of it. But only, friends, through repentance and faith in what Jesus has done for you, so that you can be what, part of what He's going to do. Even through you. That's what Judges is meant to help us see. For all its ugliness. It helps us to see beauty. And we're going to pray ourselves to the ability to see it. Let's pray now. Father, I, I do pray that you would help us to see through the ugliness to The beauty of Christ revealed as the one that we've been meeting all along. Thank you for a king who is more powerful than we are and more wise. Thank you for a king who is merciful even at the cost of his own life. So that people who are not just, people like me, can be made right. And thank you now for the calling that you put on our lives bear witness to this world. We give up our right to build it. We can't. But we do want to be part of it. Help us, Father. Give us the strength and the wisdom to know what our role is. Help us. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a couple of songs now that that respond to this message by, by focusing our minds and our hearts on Jesus as a king. The first one that we're going to sing is a new song to us. It's actually fairly new lyrics, but a really old, familiar melody. It's a song where we give up glory that we might get for ourselves for being part of this world that we're, we're taught to long for. If we're willing to give up glory for it, it can be ours. This song is going to help us express that. And then during that second song, uh, we want to invite you parents to go and grab your kids from childcare during that song, that second song, and then bring them back in here so that they can enjoy the benediction and the last song with us before we go out together.